0: I have the privilege, a very rare privilege, to speak to you twice within the same context. We are still in chapter 6. We are still in Galilee. And actually, that's going to be one of the questions we're going to address this morning. Are we or are we not in Galilee? But last week, Pastor John spoke to you about him teaching and feeding somewhere upwards of 15,000 people. And this morning we're going to see that in just a mere matter of hours later, the disciples had themselves in quite a jam. They were working hard, they were tired, and Jesus is going to be walking on water, which is a really, really cool story. And that's also part of this morning's talk, which is, is it just a story? All of this, this long day that the disciples had, had them confused. They had been with Jesus at this point for over two years, and they had seen him do some remarkable things. But they still didn't understand who he was. And perhaps that can describe us. And if it does, I have some good news to share with you this morning. So we've got an awful lot to cover. So let's go ahead and jump into our text. When they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the entire region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, and countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that he might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as it touched him were made well." Let's pray. Father, I am grateful for this chance to address this passage. And I pray, Lord, that you would give me clarity in conveying something that could be very confusing to people. And I pray, Lord, that you will give me the wisdom to address that in a winsome way. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Our primary focus this morning will be verses 50 to 52 and the impact confusion can have on our faith walk. But before I get to those verses, I want to spend a few minutes again on some geography and a question raised by skeptics concerning this particular narrative. After feeding Mark, after the feeding Mark tells us that Jesus immediately made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida. Okay? Now, if you're not aware, this text includes one of the many so-called contradictions or inconsistencies in the Bible. Our text says, to the other side, Bethsaida. And in John chapter 6, verse 17, it states that the disciples got into the boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. Matthew only says they went to the other side. Believe it or not, archaeologists and Bible scholars have been arguing about this passage for hundreds of years. If you were here two weeks ago, you will recall this map. You'll note Bethsaida is in bold at the top northeastern end of the Sea of Galilee. The controversy centered on the fact that Bethsaida and Capernaum, you can see that up there, are on opposite sides of the Sea of Galilee. They both can't be right. And there's the rub. Can they? Our text also mentions that Jesus sent his disciples off and went up to the mountain to what? To pray. This turns out to be very important. I've always been fascinated by topology and geography. It's just a thing with me. I also like weather. And you may not, so I'm going to try to keep this brief. I'm not that keen on the word try, so I'm going to keep it brief. Let's start with the sea of Galilee. Now, how big is a sea? When you guys think sea, what do you envision? For me, when I think sea, I think big, right? I think The sea of something is a very big body of water. Well, Scripture also refers to this exact same body of water as Lake Gennesaret or Lake Tiberias. And as it turns out, lake is more appropriate. Because here's the fun fact for all of our kids that are in attendance. How many of you have been to Lake Seminole? Been to Lake Seminole? You know where it is? It's just down the road, just past us keep going down Spring Creek Road, you get there. All right. Lake Seminole is literally six square miles bigger than the Sea of Galilee. Pretty small. I don't think of Lake Seminole as a big lake. It turns out it's smaller than the Sea of Galilee. What's the biggest difference between the Sea of Galilee and Lake Seminole? Well, well. for one, the Sea of Galilee has mountains. Last time I looked, we don't have many. Not down this end of Georgia. So there's only one mountain on the western side, and it's on the southwestern side. It's called Mount Tabor. Now, that would support John's account because Capernaum, would then be directly across. Across, just going north. Here's the fascinating bit. The word Bethsaida, I'm sorry, I need to go back. On the eastern side of the lake, it's it's a mountain range. It goes right up to the edge of the shore, which, if you remember last week, when John was speaking, what was he doing before he fed them? He was doing what? He was teaching, okay? And he tended to teach from a boat on the shoreline what makes a more natural amphitheater than a group of mountains that are on the side of a body of water. It's just a natural amphitheater. The likelihood, in my opinion, based on what Jesus was doing and where he was doing it, he would have been on the northeastern side where it says Gersa. Okay, That would support John's account, right? Capernaum straight across, Mount Tabor straight up to Bethsaida. Here's the fascinating bit. The word Bethsaida means house of the hunt and was used throughout the Middle East for hunting and fishing locations. Now, how many of you have ever heard the word Salem? Right? Familiar with the word Salem? Do you know what it means? It means peace. Okay? Do you know how many Salems there are in the United States? Any guesses? One more than half. 26. There are 26 Salems in the United States. What's that got to do with Bethsaida? Good question. In 2018, archaeologists unearthed the remains of a village called Bethsaida Galilee between Capernaum and the Gennesaret Valley. Ah, there's two that say this. One's in Galilee and the other one's in the Decapolis. So why spend so much time on this? Because our theme this morning is about being confused. When skeptics emphatically state that archaeology, or any other science for that matter, has proven the Bible wrong... What they're really saying is this. Based on what we know right now, what the Bible is saying can't be right. That's the conclusion that science has declared that they've proven the Bible wrong. It took archaeologists a couple of hundreds of years to discover the formerly hidden Bethsaida. Now all of a sudden the Bible isn't wrong because science has found out something that they didn't formally know. This is a pattern that has repeated itself a couple of times in my lifetime. I can think of the five roof colonnades that they said didn't exist and then they just found them a couple of years back. So we have to have caution when science declares the Bible to be in error. Or to have a contradiction, because if you're looking there, Capernaum and Bethsaida Galilee are directly across from the east northeastern end of the lake. Now, God could have neatly laid everything out and made it obvious for the archaeologists to be able to find this second Bethsaida. Could he not? I mean, of course he could. He could have just made that obvious from the get-go. But he chose not to why i think it's because god has consistently been all throughout time in line with hebrews 11:6 hebrews 11:6 states without faith it is impossible to do what please god god requires faith so whenever science or a gifted speaker makes statements that contradicts that blatantly contradict scripture, what's your default position? Is it that God has, what God has declared? Or is it what science has declared? Is your default position to have faith in God or to have faith in man? Which is the perfect segue to the focus of our passage this morning. There are different ways we describe when we're unsure of something. One way to describe when we're unsure is confused. Confusion manifests itself in many ways. Some get quiet, some argumentative, some get intimidated, and some frightened. Our focal verses have our disciples in illustrating confusion that results in fear. Verse 50. For they all saw him and were terrified. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. I mentioned earlier, by this time Jesus had been with the disciples for over two years. And they had seen him do many miracles. In fact, it wasn't that long ago, it was chapter 4, where we calmed the storm. Right? Remember? Do you not care that we perish? of course he cared. So he had already proven that he could calm a storm. And yet, when he approached them walking on the violent sea, they were terrified. Terrified. Your Bible might say, troubled. The Greek here literally means an absence of calm. That's a good way to describe when you're upset, is it not? Just a complete absence of calm. Considered how exhausted these men must have been after the day that they'd had. Jesus had been teaching for hours. Then he fed thousands. Who fed thousands? What did Jesus say? You feed them. Have you done the math? Twelve guys? Fifteen thousand people? That would be a heck of a dinner on the grounds. If our deacons around here were to to have to feed 15,000 people. They'd have to literally feed more people than live in Bainbridge. One afternoon. And what happened at the end? Right after he was done feeding them, what did Jesus do? He immediately, immediately, I love Mark, he's got a whole lot of New York in him, immediately, do it now, do it now. He immediately put them in the boat, and sent them across the lake. Now, how big is the lake again? How big is the Sea of Galilee? At its widest point, eight miles. Thirteen miles long, eight miles. He immediately sent them out. And by the way, I googled this, just if you're interested. It's only a three and a half, four hour walk from the top right-hand corner, just past Bethsaida, to Bethsaida Galilee. Three and a half, four hours. Have any idea how long the disciples were out on the storm? I told you I also enjoy weather. I'm going to give you this really quickly. What happens is, is mountains high, water low. Shallow water, by the way. It's only 20 feet, 20 to 30 feet deep, so it's, it's very shallow. Temperature change, wind, cold air comes down. Creates a whole lot of turbulence. Happens like that in the Middle East. You got hot air, you got cold air, you got cold water, you got hot water. It creates a whole lot of turbulence. And Jesus, our text said that Jesus. It was, be, it was evening, evening, not night, evening, and he saw them struggling. So he had sent them off immediately after they were doing this feeding work. And then it said that he came to them when fourth watch. Anybody know when that is, kids? Anybody? Fourth watch. 3 AM to 6 AM. So how long were they out there fighting in a storm? For that, where they all knew it was only a three to four hour walk. They had to be fighting this storm for hours, probably six, maybe eight hours. After a day that started with a really long session of teaching and feeding 15,000 people They were exhausted. They were probably not just agnostic. I know what I would be, irritated. And then you see a ghost. You see something. It's a vision. You're not sure what it is, but you see it. If you're confused about who Jesus is and what he's up to and what he's doing, it's... Now, most of us might not be thinking terrified, but are you thinking about how tired you would be after a day like that? after probably close to 24 hours of a really grueling day. Troubled and confused, to me, seems pretty reasonable. Skeptics, and many of us, aren't a whole lot different than the disciples. Generally speaking, we deal with confusion and things we don't understand in one of two ways. We either dismiss it, or we fear it. As noted earlier, skeptics dismiss anything inconvenient to what they want or can't validate scientifically. For people who want to believe but are confused, fear is one very understandable reaction. However, the end of verse 52 to me struck me as very harsh. They did not understand about the loaves But their hearts were hardened. Their hearts were hardened. That phrase just, I have to be honest, I was studying this, and that phrase really bothered me. You know, I don't know about you guys, but when you're reading scripture, you ever read anything and just go through it? It just doesn't sit right. Well, it turns out that this particular passage, this particular phrase, is another case of what I refer to as British English. Right? Most of our translations are translated into the British version of English, which, as all of us know, is not really all that accurate against American English. As most of you know, my New York English is the same as your Southern English. So even in America, different. It's certainly different than British English. And what I love here is that the literal meaning of the Greek word translated "hardened." Means lack of feeling due to callus. Now it strikes me as odd that they would have a word that would mean all of that. Lack of feeling due to callus. Ever had a callus? Sure you have. What is callus? It's dead skin. Is it not? Can you feel anything where you have a callus? No. Why? Because it's dead. All right, now I know what some of you are thinking. Okay, Roy, I'll give you that. But how is dead better than hardened? Because it's instructive. They didn't understand because their hearts, if I said this in American English, it would read this way. They didn't understand because their hearts were still dead. Which would be another way of saying, they didn't believe yet. They were still confused about who Jesus was. You might be saying to yourself, how is that possible? Well, we're not Jewish. I'm only aware of one person with Jewish heritage sitting here today. If a person was Jewish at the time, they were expecting a Messiah to do what? Redeem Israel from who? The Romans. Right? Now, Jesus was doing some spectacular things. I mean, there was no denying it. I mean, it, it, what Jesus was doing was extraordinary. He was defying physics. He was defying their eyes. They were seeing it, and it was unbelievable. But the one thing he wasn't doing anything about at this point, or ever, frankly, is what? What? He never did anything about the Romans. Never. So they were confused. Disciples may have been with Jesus for two years at this point, but they weren't believers yet. Look with me at Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom, who, we all once lived. In the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. That's every single one of us, including the disciples who had been with him for two years. Outright skeptics and spiritually dead religious people aren't that much different. The skeptic completely rejects God. It's pretty simple. I just don't believe it. Others who think they know who God is Try to make God fit into the God that they've created. They want God to fit in the world that they've created for him, not the other way around. I mean, frankly, that's the big distinction between an outright skeptic and a religious person that doesn't believe in Jesus. The religious person that doesn't believe that Jesus is God, and and make no mistake about this, the disciples did not believe that Jesus was God at this point. They did not get it. And for the record, we're only in chapter 6. Mark has got 10 more chapters, and it's going to be a while yet before they really believe, truly believe. But religious people are fixated on we understand who God is, but if they haven't based what that understanding is on scripture, quite often what is the case is they've created God that suits the world that they want him to be. They want a world that, is, that has God operating and behaving in a certain way. And look at what that does. Because if God isn't acting and doing what we expect him to do, i.e., we're just like the disciples in this story, what's the problem? The problem is, is when God or Jesus doesn't deliver, Well, then there's a problem. The disciples didn't understand who Jesus was or why he came at this point. Any differently than us? Think of this: hanging around Jesus doesn't make you doesn't get you saved any more. Then let's say hanging around in a garage makes you a car. Okay? You can, you can hang around a car, and you can hang around religious people, and you can go to church, but that doesn't mean that you're safe. These men had left everything behind to be with Jesus. They had been with him for two full years. They had seen him do remarkable things, yet not saved, didn't believe he was God, didn't understand why he came, because Jesus wasn't doing what they expected him to do. So look, listen, that all sounds like bad news, but it's not. It's actually great news, okay? Okay? Some of you may have been sharp enough to realize, and I don't think that the, the, the verses got put up for you, but when I spoke verse 50 and I skipped to 52, I left out the last half of 51, and uh, last half the 50 and 51 entirely. And I want to return to that right now. Immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased and they were utterly astounded. I just said they weren't believers. And as often as the case in scripture, when either an angel or the Lord suddenly appear on a scene, what invariably did they say? Fear not. God is not in the habit of frightening his children. And I want to suggest something to you here. What he really said was, it is I am. Now, it's not good English. But it's really more literal if you look at the Greek underneath it and how it's structured. He was saying to these Jewish men, I am is with you. Fear not. Now Think about how impactful that is for a Jewish person. Well, for one thing, for some people who said Jesus never said he was God, well, yes, he did. Jesus was making a very specific declaration to his disciples that even John MacArthur kind of suggested that Jesus was testing them. And I can understand that with the last half of one of the verses there. Uh, I think it's verse 42 maybe or something it, it, where, where it's, it's, it suggests that Jesus was, he was trying to slip by, but they saw him. I mean, I can see that. And possibly Jesus was testing them, but even if he was testing them, he certainly wasn't put off by them. You know, they failed miserably, just like I failed miserably, and every one of you who is a believer initially rejected and dismissed Jesus at some point. I'm not aware. I have yet to meet the person that the very first second that they ever heard about Jesus said, Count me in. I'm in. That's awesome. That's awesome. It's fantastic. I've been waiting for this my entire life. I'm sure that it has happened in the history of mankind. I just have not bumped into it in my lifetime. But Jesus was saying, there's no need to be afraid because I am with you. In other words, God is with you, so don't be afraid. Which to me is a great reminder for all of us. When God is with you, there is nothing to fear. The disciples may not have believed in him yet, but Jesus was physically with them. For us, Jesus is with us and always with us from the moment we surrender to him and declare him our Lord. From that moment on, is just a, a remarkable verse. It's in it's Joshua, and it's also in the Gospel of John, and it's also in Hebrews 13.5, and it is this. In Joshua, it says, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. Jesus said the exact same thing in the Gospel of John, and in Hebrews, it says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Jesus doesn't just calm the storm with his words. He's with you. He was with them. And it's hard for me to convey it to you because you have to actually be a believer to literally understand the distinction. But once the Lord is with you, there's a peace, Scripture says in another place, there's a peace that passes all understanding. I can't describe it any more than that. I can just tell you that I know what it is. Jesus is not put off by their disbelief. He continued to layer additional reasons for them to believe until they all the confusion cleared and they believed. And the exact same thing was true with me. I initially dismissed everything about Jesus, fantasy. It's a bunch of stories in a book. I mean, that was my position when I was in my 20s. I said, this can't possibly be legit. Just like any other skeptic that says, science can't prove any of this, so it can't be true. Because Jesus defies physics, he defies logic, he defies everything that we come to expect. Mark concludes chapter 6 with Jesus right back to healing people for every win. This, no matter what anyone may have thought about, no matter what the disciples thought about this particular episode, no matter what how dismissed everything is, Jesus, the greatest news on earth to me, is that Jesus is relentless. Don't believe this? How about this? You don't believe that? How about another thing? In the case of chapter 6, Jesus moves right from them going, We don't get it. To, look with me, verse 54. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized, here's just a a humorous note to me these are the people who probably just walked around the north part of the lake, and these guys had been killing themselves for nine hours. And there they are, they're waiting. And it ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard that he was, imploring him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment, and as many as it touched it were made well. Jesus is just his his presence alone, just touching the hem, of his, you know, just touching that little bit. We know the woman who was healed of her issue. We know that there was so much power in Jesus that it was, it was defying everything that we understand in the natural order of things, the way things are on earth. Because he was gone. He was temporarily walking around in flesh and it must have been really, really cool to be around and watching all of this stuff. But they did not understand at this point. Jesus was and is never deterred by our lack of belief. And that's the thought I want to leave us with as we begin our week. Be honest with yourself. What role does confusion play in your faith walk? Do you dismiss whatever doesn't fit your conclusions about God or Jesus? Are your conclusions based on Scripture? Or a line that I like to say, what other people have told you That scripture says. Have you actually studied it yourself? If you're a believer this morning, when people reject you, they're hostile or condescending regarding your faith, we need to recall our own rejection. I told you about mine. What does yours look like? We humans are quick to forget we were once confused by Jesus. Like I said, Did you really understand who Jesus was the first time you heard about him? Really? I'd suggest we were not that much different from the disciples. We're prone to frustration, fear, arrogance before we believed. And then sadly, for many of us, we're prone to exactly those same things after we believe until the Holy Spirit gets done doing some work with us. Now, a pastor likes to use the phrase, it's all about Jesus. Of course, he's right. For us here at Grace, we're all about Jesus. I'm prone to the phrase, thank you, Jesus. Because in my particular case, I understand how remarkable it is that he relentlessly pursued me no matter how often I just keep pushing back and going, this can't be legit. This religious stuff is for the birds. I remember it. Jesus just kept relentlessly showing me I am who I said I am and I care about you and his arms are always open wide. So thank you Jesus for healing and pursuing us even when we're stubbornly fighting, resisting, dismissing you. Thank you for pursuing me personally relentlessly and I'll leave you with this question. Is he relentlessly pursuing you? What have you decided concerning Jesus? Shortly, in a couple of minutes, we're going to be taking communion. Communion is one of those interesting words. It means our common union. With who? We're going to be publicly identifying ourselves with Jesus, saying, We're His. Now, I know that there's a lot of nice songs that say, he is mine. But the most important part of all of that, we're his. And in Matthew 26, he reminded us that we were to do this in remembrance of him. Remembrance of what? The fact that he wasn't who we expected him to be. He was more. But not more from the things that we tend to value in this life. He was more because he cared for people who most people don't care about. He was willing to give of himself when most of us would probably just push people away. And that's the example that he set for us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your willingness to keep pursuing us and to keep revealing yourself to us while we frankly just don't believe you are who you said you were. I thank you, Lord, for the fact that no matter how many times we seem to push away, no matter how confused we might be, it never keeps you from relentlessly pursuing us. Thank you for loving us so much for what you did for us on the cross. Thank you for loving us enough to accept us as broken as we are. For I pray it all in your precious name. Amen.